Well, good morning. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Dylan, and I'm the worship leader here at Covenant. So what is happening this morning is certainly not the norm. Okay, I normally don't get up and speak here for 30 minutes. I might speak for a couple minutes in between a song or two, but normally you don't have to sit through this much of my voice, and for that, I'm sorry. But today, I get to lead worship in a different way. I get to lead worship through the teaching of God's Word, and I cannot explain to you how much of an honor that truly is. This morning, we actually are back into our first Sunday, hopping back into the book of John. If you don't know, we've been in the book of John for about two years now. <laughs> but if you're anything like me, these last few chapters of this book are what I've been looking forward to the whole time, not because I want to be done, but because this is really the climax of the story where you and I are forgiven by the risen King Jesus. And that's amazing. So we're going to jump back into it, but I want to give you some, some context here. Where we're picking up is directly following when Peter denied Jesus three times in the courtyard when he was being questioned by the high priest. And now, after the religious leaders that had arrested Jesus had brought him before the religious leader of the region, now they bound him and took him to the political leader in that region to try to get him killed. And that's exactly where I, we find ourselves this morning. So whether you've got a physical Bible or you're using your phone or a tablet, let's turn to John chapter 18, and we're going to begin in verse 28 as we read our passage this morning. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Quite the evasive answer, huh? Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. So here in this passage, we see two very different figures looking at each other eye to eye, squaring off on a dialogue that would have a massive impact on the gospel story. Jesus makes it very clear in this interaction that his kingdom is not one of an earthly kingdom. You see, right here we get a picture of the moment that Jesus, the king of heaven, stands before Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea. 
These are two influential people with two polar opposite motivations and two very incredibly contradictory ideas of what lordship really looks like. You see, Pilate lived his life to build a kingdom that was built on pride and on force and the love of human praise, the desire for domination and self-interest. But yet here we see Christ as he was getting ready to lay down his life to establish his kingdom, one that was built on love, sacrifice, humility, and righteousness. I want to really paint the picture of how different these two figures truly are. One of them, a real king whose authority held all weight, and the other was just a king or a ruler only by permission. One of these men held all the power to do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, despite his frail appearance. And the other one could only do what the king in front of him allowed him to do, despite his appearance of majesty. You see, things are not always as they seem. In God's kingdom, there is often a mighty reversal of appearances. And you know this. The meek rule. The least are the greatest. The poor are rich. The weak are strong. The unlearned are wise. And here in this moment, the beaten, defenseless Christ was actually the one holding court on Pilate and the Roman Empire and the religious leaders that bound him up and brought him there to try to sentence him to death. But since we know the answer to what Pilate asked, that Jesus truly is the king, we're going to do something this morning where we look at a few characteristics or traits of his kingdom. Now, I don't know about you, but in times of stress, when I'm feeling really, really overwhelmed with life, there is one thing that makes me feel incredibly calm, and that's water. I don't know if anybody else can relate to that at all, but simply the sound of water makes my anxieties and my fears and my stresses sting a bit less. That's never more true than when I'm standing at the beach. Anybody else like the beach around here? Amen. I got an amen over that. Amen. Yeah. So that's never more true when I'm at the beach and I've got my feet in the water and I'm listening to the crashing waves all around me. It puts me just so much at ease. And, and on top of that, just when I look around, it's impossible not to feel peacefully overwhelmed by the majesty of the ocean. And when the horizon hits the crystal blue waters, there's nothing that can really describe it. It's amazing. But that can change. I know that for me, when I take a few more steps out into the water, my peace starts to turn a little bit to panic. I don't know if you can relate to this. You know, first of all, I've got to make sure I'm shuffling my feet so that the stingrays that I know are everywhere on the ocean floor don't get me, right? And then if there's no stingrays, then I've got to scan for some sharks because I'm convinced that as soon as I step into the water, they are going to eat me alive. But if there's no sharks and no stingrays, then I've got to make sure I'm looking out for jellyfish because I don't know if you've ever had an encounter with one, but I have, and I certainly don't recommend the experience. And if there's none of those, then there's the crabs. And I had one try to fight me once in Florida, so I'm a little bit scarred and had a bad experience. But even if none of those threats are present, there's still the actual fierceness of the ocean water itself, right? 
It's a beautiful thing, but yet one strong current or riptide can knock you straight off your feet and leave you fighting for your life. See, just because something is beautiful on the surface does not mean that it's beautiful on the inside. See, the appearance of majesty and splendor can actually be quite deceiving. Speaking of appearances, what do we see happen in the very beginning of our passage this morning? Well, let's look at verse 28. Read along with me. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, and it was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters. Why? So that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Did you catch that? These religious leaders didn't want to break the law so that they could eat the Passover meal. See, their hearts were so calloused and corrupt that they were more concerned about keeping the law, or at least the appearance of the law, while plotting to kill the Son of God, the very author of the law. And that leads me to point number one, if you're taking notes, and I hope that you are, Christ's kingdom is about the heart. Christ's kingdom is about the heart. I think to really understand the magnitude of this verse, we've got to go all the way back to the book of Exodus. The religious leaders were trying to remain clean so that they could eat the meal of the Passover. But do you know what Passover is? Well, of course, we know that it's a a holiday that was celebrated by the Jews in the Old Testament and is still today. But what's really interesting is when you discover where the term Passover actually comes from. It, had, it adds a whole new weight to this exchange. See, I'm sure that most of us are aware of when Moses went before Pharaoh and commanded that he let the Israelites go out of slavery, right? And every single time that Moses commanded he let the people go, Pharaoh responded with one word, what? No. And every single time Pharaoh said no, God sent a plague as a punishment to Egypt. Well, I've got to tell you, the last plague was certainly the worst of them all. Now, don't get me wrong. They were all horrible. But the last one was undoubtedly the worst. So I want to look at Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 3. And this is God speaking to Moses and telling him what to do. Okay, so he said, Tell all of the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses. A lamb for a household. Now let's jump down to verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And lastly, we're going to jump down to verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this last plague is where God says that he's going to send the angel of death to kill all of the firstborn sons in the region except for the Israelites who had the blood of the sacrificed lamb 
on their doorposts. In this same passage, God commands the Israelites to remember this day with a week-long feast. This right here is the meal that these religious leaders were worried about missing out on. Meanwhile, they were delivering the very spotless lamb, Jesus, to have his blood shed. Little did they know that it would be the ultimate protection for all who would receive it and be saved by it. Amen? They were ushering in the sacrifice that would be once and for all. But what's so shocking is that the religious leaders were so diseased in their hearts that they were more worried about defiling their image in the sight of the law than defiling themselves in the sight of God himself. There's an endless amount of points to be taught from this passage. That's for sure. There's so much we can glean from reading this over and over and over again. But the thing I really want to drive home this morning the most is that Christ's kingdom is about the heart and not the image. Christ's kingdom is about the heart and not the image. Listen, behavior modification will not save us. Despite what you've been promised, Slapping rules all over all of our actions and decisions and things like that will not save us. Striving to remain clean if our motivations are in the wrong place all by our own strength will not save us. Those things are all about image. They're all about appearance. The only thing that will save us is if we receive the gospel of Jesus by grace through faith. That's it. And that's good news. But unfortunately, I think this moment detailed by John about these religious leaders is often far too relatable. I mean, let's just be honest here. This is the body of Christ. This is a safe space. We can talk about the tough topics because it makes us more like Jesus. But far too often, I think we're more concerned with people's perception of our righteousness rather than the practice of our righteousness. We allow ourselves to get caught up, as these religious leaders did, with following rules or doing the things that we think we're supposed to so that everyone around us doesn't think that we're anything less than perfect. But here's the reality, church, and you know this. We're all fallen. We are all sinful. And the only thing that can truly save and redeem us is the thing that we often forget. A complete and total surrender to Jesus. 2 Samuel 16, 7 says it like this. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Christ's kingdom is about what's truly on the inside the very deepest parts of our being. All of our striving is absolutely in vain if it's not rooted in complete and total dependence on Jesus. So let us not be a people that look so intently at the law that we miss our king. Let us not be a people that are so caught up in fruitless religiosity that we fail to grow in adoration and affection toward our King Jesus. 
It is such an easy trap to fall into when our eyes are not on Christ first and foremost, and I certainly can relate to that. See, as we continue to look through this exchange between Jesus and Pilate, when we get toward the end, we see a crucially crucially important topic arise. Let's look down at verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. I have to tell you, as I study this passage, most everything I read about what Pilate said here was in agreement that this was really not a question that Pilate was seeking an answer to. This was really coming from a sarcastic tone. And that's definitely supported by the fact that he asked the question and then just walked straight out, right? I mean, I think that's proof enough. And we could try to theorize all the reasons why Pilate maybe didn't want to hear this answer, but despite whatever his motivations truly are, what matters is that this is a crucial question for every person that has ever or will ever walk this planet to seek an answer to. Why? Point number two. Christ's kingdom is about truth. Christ's kingdom is about truth. And that might seem obvious on the surface, but as we unpack this a bit, I think we'll understand the times that we're living in. I've heard it said that what you believe about God is the single most important thing about you. And I would absolutely support that. However, I might take it a step further as well. I would say that your ability to form what you believe about God is actually founded on what you believe about truth. I want to tell you a quick story I I heard the other day. There was a couple of men that were going on this hunting trip to the Canadian wilderness. Anybody ever done that before? That sounds a little wild. Uh, So they took a plane. They got like a private plane and flew themselves into the wilderness. And I'm no hunting expert, which I am. I know you're shocked to hear as I stand here in my skinny jeans. But that sure sounds like an epic trip. If you got to take a plane into the wilderness and then go hunt, that sounds pretty crazy. But anyway, um, two weeks later, then the pilot comes back to pick them up. And he came up to them. He saw that they actually had two animals along with them that were bagged up that they wanted to take back home. And the pilot says, guys, like I covered this with you. I told you I only have enough space, and this plane can only handle to take both of you and one animal. And one of the hunters actually replied, and he said, but we did it last year in a plane this size. And the pilot let us take them. And the pilot said, okay, I guess if you did it before, we can do it again. That was a mistake. So the two moose and the hunters were actually loaded up into the airplane, and they took off. But the weight was too much to handle. Unfortunately, the airplane crashed into an obstructing hill that it couldn't make it over. And these two hunters somehow miraculously survived. And so they get out of the plane, and they look around them, and they try to get their bearings. And one of the hunters said to the other, well, shoot, (laughs) where are we? And so the other guy kind of looked around for a moment and gathered himself up, and he said, well, 
I think we got about a half mile farther than we got last year. I'm going to give you a moment. Some of you need to catch up on that one. <laughs> you see, truth matters. The whole truth matters. We live in a world, and most especially a country, that is increasingly abandoning the idea that there is a such thing as absolute truth. People are clinging to their own sense of morality or drawing from their own experiences, saying that truth is relative to them based on those things. But I have to tell you, Jesus does not agree. John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then here, in this interaction with Pilate, when he's being asked about whether he is a king or not, he responds by saying that the very reason he came into the world is to bear witness to the truth, and that those who are of the truth will listen to his voice. Let me be so abundantly clear with us here today, church, just as Jesus was time and time again. Jesus is not a truth. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is not a truth. He is the truth. And I want to press in here just a little bit on this idea of truth. It is impossible to accept Christ and his sacrifice without believing that the life he lived, the death that he died, and the resurrection that he accomplished were all absolutely true. That is the gospel. It is impossible to accept Christ and his sacrifice without believing that the God of the Bible is the only true God. These might sound like strong statements, but they're simply from Scripture. Scripture. These are foundational beliefs for the Christian faith. But even further, we cannot claim to cling to Christ as our Lord and Savior while rejecting the things that he spoke while he was here on earth walking alongside of us. So what is the test for absolute truth? We must look to Christ and give his word the respect that it deserves as the total authority for how we live our lives. If scripture is true, and I believe that it is, it is the written word of God. So when we're met with choices or decisions or we're asked to stake a claim on a social issue or whatever it may be, we look right here. Call it old-fashioned, call it ignorant, call it whatever you want. But I know what Jesus said. If we are of the truth, we will listen to his voice and his alone. Scripture is the guide. If it aligns with the spoken word, written word of God, it's true. If it doesn't, it's false. And it truly is as simple as that. We as Christians have got to hunger and thirst for the word. It is the very breath we have to sustain our spiritual lives. It is what we must cling to throughout all of life. We have to fight the urge to be like the world and sit on little thrones and pick and choose what is right and what is wrong, what is true, and what is not, we need to humble ourselves. 
And we need to trust that what Jesus said is what he actually meant. Absolute truth reflects his kingdom. And any other approach to truth is displeasing to God. So let us be a people of the truth. Just as Jesus said, and the promise truly is beautiful, we will listen to the voice of our king. So when we look at this passage this morning as a whole, in the context of the entire gospel story, what we find is an overarching theme to this interaction that is so incredibly striking. Jesus, the Son of God, the ruler of heaven, standing confidently and calmly while he's being questioned by Pontius Pilate, walking through the beginning stages of his condemnation, which ultimately would lead to his death on the cross. At any time, since Jesus was God, he could have changed the course ahead of him, but he stayed steadfast and let the plan of redemption unfold as it it was intended. You see, Jesus was fully God and also fully man. So I need you to let it sink in that he felt the weight of the condemnation. He felt the weight of what he was walking through. He felt the anguish of what was ahead but he stayed the course. Why? Well, if we look to Luke 22, we see when he prays to the Father right before he's arrested. And I think it really shows us a part of the relationship between him and the Father. In verse 42, he prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And as we all know, he walked that out all the way to the point of death on the cross. And that leads me to point number three. Christ's kingdom is about surrender. Christ's kingdom is about surrender. So since we're on the topic of kings and kingdoms, I thought I ought to use an illustration inside that theme. I want to tell you about a really striking experience that has to do with a man called Alexander the Great. If you haven't heard of him, he was the king of Macedonia, and he was the conqueror of Asia Minor, Syria, Egypt, Babylonia, Persia, almost all of the known world at the time of his reign. One day, Alexander and a small company of his soldiers approached a strongly fortified walled city, and Alexander raised his voice and demanded to see the king. When the king arrived, Alexander ordered him to surrender the city and every single person inside. And the king laughed at him. Why would I surrender to you? You can't do anything to harm us. But Alexander offered to the king a demonstration. Alexander ordered all of his men to line up in a single file line and walk to the very edge of a cliff. And then the townspeople gathered and watched in stunned silence as one by one his soldiers marched themselves off the edge of the cliff to their deaths. After ten soldiers died, he ordered the rest of the men to return to his side. And the townspeople and the king immediately surrendered to Alexander the Great. They realized that if a few men were actually willing to die at the command of its leader, then nothing could stop his eventual victory. And this is definitely an incredibly troublesome event in history. That's for sure. 
In that story, the king commanded his soldiers to walk themselves to their death. But what if there was a king who set the tone by offering himself up as a sacrifice? What if there was a king that would die in the place of his soldiers, gave them a chance to follow him as long as they surrendered their lives totally to him? And if they did, they would be a part of a kingdom that has no end, a kingdom that is perfection in every single way, a kingdom where they can enjoy life as everlasting as it was always intended, that their pain would be no more, that their striving could cease, that their heartache, anxiety, loss, and fear could all vanish in the presence of his majesty. Well, there was, and there is. That's our king, Jesus But though our king did so much to give us this opportunity, our response must be that of total surrender to him and his will. Listen, I know that's a scary word. I think when we really let it sink in what surrender means, it is scary and it's terrifying. I think that for many of us, the idea of surrender, myself included, it causes us to begin to defend ourselves and and some of the things that we hold on to. When we envision surrender, we don't always envision a brighter future, but rather an experience of loss. Sometimes we get comfortable trying to hold on to the things that we become so accustomed to, some of it being sin. And we think that giving it up will actually cause us harm, but that's simply not the case. Certainly for all of us, there are specific things that God is calling us to surrender, namely our sin. I don't know what it is that you wrestle with. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's sexual immorality. Maybe it's overindulgence. But it's not just sin that God is asking us to surrender, church. It's the good things, too. Surely we all remember when Abraham and Sarah were well into their old age and hadn't yet had the son that God had promised them. They waited years and years and years, and Isaac was here and grown. And then God did what seemed unthinkable. He commanded him to take his son to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him to God. Of course, we know that God stopped him before he actually went through with it and provided another way because he's good. But this gives us a very clear picture and example that there is nothing that is off limits to God. In total surrender, it's the good and the bad. Everything is his. See, many times I think our fear of surrender is really our unbelief that God is better than everything that God is telling us to give him. But there really is a place where we can get to in our walk with the Lord, where we're no longer most concerned about what we think we need, but are fully satisfied in the God that we already have. Let that sink in, church. It's a place we can get to where it's not about the stuff that we think we must hold on to that this earth offers. It's not about the sin that so easily entangles us. When we are so satisfied in the God that we already have, we'll give anything when we believe he's everything. Whether it's work, dreams, aspirations, future goals, we should be willing to say the same thing that Jesus did. Not my will be done, but yours, Lord. If Christ, when put on trial as innocent, made obedience to the Father, the supreme goal, then we should too, right? 
A surrendered life to God looks for opportunities to spread the gospel, no matter the cost. A surrendered life seeks the will of God, despite what that might mean, in every single aspect of life. And I want to put it very simply for us here this morning. The primary thing that God wants us to surrender is our lives. Paul said it this way in Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Christ Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the ultimate example of true surrender. So we must do as Christ did and empty ourselves, humble ourselves, and become obedient with all of our lives. I want to close with this. I think the, the pinnacle moment of this exchange was when Jesus said that this kingdom was not of the world. We've had a chance to unpack some of the characteristics of what make up the kingdom, but just how otherworldly is this king's kingdom? How different is it from what we've seen from the rulers on earth? I think to do that, we've got to look at Revelation chapter 4. And this is an amazing church. If you've read it before, let it sink in anew this morning. I want to describe to you the moment when, G when John, on the island of Patmos, saw a vision of the throne in heaven. So starting in verse 1, he said, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seating on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From this throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, that's our King Jesus, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on that throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the Lord, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, 
to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Pretty different, right? Pretty different. But that's our king. That's the throne of our king who reigns alone, who stands supreme above every single ruler that this world would have to offer. The kings and kingdoms of this world will rise and fall. There will be people, organizations, and governments that hold great power, and some of them, just like Pontius Pilate, will use that power for all the wrong reasons. But there truly is a king who rules without contention, and that's our king, Jesus. The kings and kingdoms of this world could never stand a chance at Jesus and his kingdom. Christ has won, and he will win. That's our king, Jesus. And as we look forward to the coming reign of Christ our King, when he rules over all things in heaven and the new earth and establishes his kingdom once and for all, we must understand something very, very important, church. Christ's kingdom is not just for then. It is for now. Christ's kingdom is not just about what we'll experience in heaven. Christ's kingdom is for now. Colossians 1.13 says this, And let this sink in. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Amen. As Christians, we are now a part of God's kingdom. So when we're tempted to think that this world and all its imperfections and sin and death is all that there is, let us look to Jesus. He had no servants yet they called him master. He had no degree, yet they called him teacher. He had no medicines, yet they called him healer. He had no army, yet kings feared him. He won no military battles, yet he conquered the world. He did not live in a castle, yet they called him Lord. He ruled no nations, yet they called him King. He had committed no crime, yet they crucified him, and he was buried in a tomb, and yet he lives today. That's our king, Jesus. He is the hope that we have in this life and the life to come. So church, let us look daily to our king and his word and let it shape us and mold us into the image of Christ. Let's live with hearts after God, not just masks that look godly. Let's live in a surrender to him who surrendered himself for us. And let's live lives with the absolute truth of scripture as our ultimate guide. And let's just see what God can do with a people like that. Let's pray. King Jesus, we love you. We stand in awe of who you are. Your majesty and splendor are certainly unmatched. You are the true God. You are the ruler over all. You have all authority. There is nothing that could stand in your presence and not fall prostrate before you, worshiping the true king of glory. We walk in confidence, knowing that it is not our strength that upholds us, but the, but the strength of the almighty king, Jesus. Help us to look to you in every single way. Help us to submit to your lordship and your leadership, not to get caught up in the things that this world tells us are important, but help us to live a life that is 
surrendered fully to you and your lordship over us. Help us to understand just how much we are not king of our lives. And behold how amazing you truly are. In Jesus' name, amen.